All right, our text is the same, Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. The same text as last week, Galatians 6, 1 through 5. So it's the same title, it's the same points, everything's the same, just with some added uh, clarity in some places, I hope. It is going to be a bit of a challenge for us uh, to deal with some of the issues that we have um, just as Christians and just where we are in general in the world as church goes. But the text reads, read it one more time and uh, let's look at this tonight. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a fault, we talked about this, in any transgression, And the word you is plural, and so the church, the church body, the ones who are aware of the fault, they are, those those that are spiritual, they are commanded, don't miss that uh, the ESV here says should restore, it is a command in the Greek text, and the command is that the spiritual ones are to restore the one who's in a fault, and the way that we're to restore him is in a spirit of gentleness. See that in your text. It does not say in a spirit of condemnation. It does not say in a spirit of arrogance, uh, in a spirit of pride, in a spirit of self-righteousness. This restoration must take place by a group of people who are gentle and want the best for the person caught in the fault. And then, keep watch on yourself lest And then the you is singular, unless you, singular, are also tempted. The danger here is you can fall into the same fault that this other brother has fallen unto. Then he goes in verse 2, bear one another's burdens. Because when you take up another's burden and you help them through that, then the text says you fulfill the law of Christ, the law of Christ being to love others more than you love yourself, love your neighbor as yourself. And love carries another's burdens. Verse 3, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. He's self-deceived. Verse 4 was somewhat problematic, but let each one of you test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor And we understood that that boasting is boasting in a clean conscience before God. And then this last verse seemed out of place in some ways, but it's actually very much in place. For each one will have to bear his own load. So we have a responsibility to restore. We have a responsibility to bear burdens. And at the same time, the person in the fault... And the person with the burden has a responsibility himself, that he can't say, well, y'all didn't restore me, and y'all didn't bear my burden, and y'all are no good. Look, you have a responsibility as well. It takes two to play tennis. If you don't knock the ball back, the game's pretty much done. So two parties at work here, the one in fault and those who are gentle and spiritual helping to restore. 
And so in order to be restored, you have to be willing to be restored. Okay, so those things are there. All right, in the form of introduction, uh, we may not like these things. I don't like them much. I've been in church for 55 years, but I know this to be somewhat true. So just in introduction-wise, the problem that seems to occur in church, I'm speaking generally, I don't have anybody in mind, I'm just speaking in general terms, but we're very good at fault-finding. We're very good. And so we find fault, and I started making a list, but I was about to run out of ink. We find fault with the clothes that people wear. We find fault with the order of a service, perhaps. We find fault commonly with the music that is selected, the music that is sung, or the way that it's sung. We find fault with material things in the church, something that was bought, something that was not bought. We find fault with certain ministries. Why do they do this ministry? Why don't they do this ministry? And we find fault one way or the other with that. We find fault with kids. Kids do this, kids do that. See what they did, see what they did, see what they did. We find fault with assumptions. We find a fault because we assume something to be true when sometimes it's not even true, but we didn't take the time to find out whether it was true or not, and we just conclude it was true, and then we have a fault with the fault that we assumed. We also find, I know this in reality, we find fault with where people sit in church. If you want a backdrop of that story, I was in a church many, many years ago, and I sat on the back row with the teenage kids, and my wife sat three or four rows up with some other teenage kids, and little did we know all through the church, it was being said that me and my wife were having marital problems. We didn't even know we were having problems, but we were having marital problems because we didn't sit together. We had nothing to do with our marriage. We were just trying to take care of the kids. But nevertheless, they found fault because we didn't sit together. There's people find fault with whether women have head covering or whether women don't have head covering. They find fault with what hobbies people have or what hobbies they don't have. We could go on forever and take too much time. I'm just saying, in a blanket statement, church people are professionals at finding faults. Now I was going to make a list of what we restore people from. And I drew a line, and it's still blank. I was trying to think through all the cases of restoration I've seen in life in church and how much effort's been given to restore people who were caught in a fault. And I'm like, I just didn't come up with much of anything. And then I thought, if I came up with restoration, have I ever seen somebody restored from a spirit of humility? Have I ever seen somebody restored in a spirit of gentleness? Have I ever seen somebody restored where great patience was exercised? Or contextually speaking, have I ever seen anybody restored by a group of people exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit? It's like, in 55 years, although there may have been a restoration case somewhere along the line, I'm having trouble bringing those back to my mind. But if you want to talk about faults, I've got books of faults 
that I've seen exposed in the church over all of these years. So I think the next time, if it ever happens, it's not happened here recently, but if it ever happens, that somebody comes to me to enlighten me about a fault that they found. There's this fault, pastor, in the church, and this is the fault. Here's going to be my first question. I'm going to say to them, okay, now that you've identified the fault, what is your definitive plan for restoration? Well, I don't have a plan. Then stop talking to me about the fault you found because you obviously don't care about the person. Because if you care, then restoration is the heart of your response to the fault that you've become aware of. All right, so I just think about that, and I think that's still true. And I think it's true of me, and I think it's true of you, that we don't even plan it, but even in the course of an ordinary day and Sundays, that we see faults or find faults, but very rarely, if ever, do we make a list of how to restore someone because we care about them. Where's that list? So I remind you of my text. I will not do the same amount of work with it. We've already done it, but I must remind you of it. You see the restoration that restoration is the motive. And we find that people do get caught in a transgression, overtaken in a fault, King James, discovered in some sin, taken in a wrongdoing, caught in a fault. And we summed it up in this phrase from a commentator who said it this way, quote, here is a person who without deliberately planning to perform a wicked deed or to embark upon a devious course is overtaken in a trespass. We concluded last week that it's true of every one of us at some point in our life, we get caught in a fault that we didn't wake up that morning and say, I am going to go contrary to God and I'm going to sin big today. But we somehow got caught in something we never planned to be a part of. Now don't raise your hand or it's not asking for a response in that way. But can you remember being caught in a fault and having a group of spiritual people who were gentle seek to restore you. You may have a story, but I think they're few and far between. Now, I searched, and there's a couple of things I thought of, but to stay out of the church situations maybe, I did think of this, and I know this to be true for my life. So just one personal story. They kind of blend together. It's two stories, but I'll blend them into one. But I remember that I got caught in a fault at seminary. And the fault that I got caught in is I got tied up in the political realm of the seminary and all the different negativity that was going on. And I got so caught up in this, and I got so distracted, and I got so off course, I didn't even realize how far off course I was in seminary. And I came to a distinct conclusion at this point in my life to leave the seminary and to never go back because all these people are terrible. That was my conclusion. And so with my newfound knowledge, I went to this man by the name of Dr. Vincent. I explained to him my newfound knowledge. And you know what he did? He cared about me. And he loved me. And he understood my story. And he said to me in very clear terms and very firm terms, if you stay on this course you will lead untold numbers of people to hell. 
That don't sound like restoration. It's the best restoration I ever experienced. He called out and exposed my error and said, do not go this way, go this way. And because of a brother who cared, I didn't bail. And I stayed. And I think now today, being a pastor of this church for over 23 years, I think about the, the people I baptized. I think about the people I counseled. If I'd have followed the fault I was on, I'd have never experienced that. I'm so thankful for a brother who would confront me and restore me and say, not this way, but this way. In the same vein, I began to be so overwhelmed with hypercriticism and all these things about the Bible, I began to doubt the veracity of God's Word. And Dr. Cable said, I want you to look at the Chicago Statement of Faith on the Inerrancy, and I want you to memorize this because this will be food for your soul. And he restored me, and I left out of there going, I don't care what anybody else says, this is God's book. It was a correction, a confrontation, but listen, it was done because they cared. You see, you can't miss this issue on you must restore. This text does not say, go tell them how to get things right. Go tell them where they're wrong and tell them where they messed up. In this text, restoration is, I know you, I love you, I want what's best for you. Let me help you to see the best way to walk. Let me walk with you through this in order that you can be restored. But you can't do that if you don't love them. can't do it unless you love them. Now, just for a biblical example, there's plenty of these, but the easy one, let's just take the easy one and look at Luke chapter 22 and 61. So let's take an easy one. In Luke 22, 61... And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Here's what we do. Here's how we justify what we say about people and their fault. They're wrong. I see what the Bible says, and they're wrong, 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 wrong. I know what the Word says, and I know what they did is wrong, wrong, wrong. And we justify our condemnation of them because we have a biblical truth that we beat them over the head with. And so you look at this text. Peter is wrong, wrong, wrong. He denies that he knows Christ. He is a liar, He has lied about his relationship with Christ. He says, I don't know the man. I've never met the man. Matthew says he begins to swear that he does not know him. And we can look at Peter at this point, and many church people would come to someone like Peter and say, apostate, apostate, apostate. You're a liar, liar, liar. You're a spineless little wimp, and you ought to leave and never come back. People would say that to somebody like Peter if they were in a situation where he denied like this. You know this is true. You know we would do something like this if somebody stated something out loud like that. Now, I'm not going to belabor it tonight because it's my future text in Sunday morning, but if you look at John 21, 
you find Christ doing something totally different than the way we would respond to the actions of Peter. John 21, 15, they finished breakfast. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, pause. Jesus knows what Peter's done. He's thought through, knowing all things, how Peter feels, how his heart is broken, how Peter wept bitterly because of what he did. Jesus didn't just walk away. He didn't just say, well, that's the way you want to be. I'm going to delete you from Facebook. You're no friend of mine. He goes to him one-on-one, in a sense, and talks to him in a conversation that has to do with concern for Peter, asking a question to reestablish him, asking a question to bring restoration to his life. Do you love me? And he's, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then he gives him responsibility. Feed my sheep. So he says these three times, and he says it the third time. You know, Peter's really hit, and we'll talk about that when we preach through it. But here's the thing. Not only does Jesus talk to him, not only does Jesus question him for restoration, Jesus gives him responsibility to show him that he trusts that he will improve and go forward. Think about that process of restoring somebody and then giving them responsibility once again. This is Christ dealing with a guy who is absolutely, thoroughly, unquestionably in a fault, in a transgression. But Christ is more concerned about restoration with Peter. Now just, it's an easy answer. Aren't you glad Peter was restored? You see what he does after restoration? I mean, I, I, I can't even describe the value of the book of First and Second Peter. I can't describe to you the value of the sermons in the book of Acts. All of that fruit out of Peter's life is because of restoration. I spent an hour on the phone today with a guy who just got beat up and beat up and beat up and beat up and beat up, church after church after church. And now, I'm like, where was the restoration? Where would his life be if he would have been restored somewhere in the process? Instead of being over here hurt and injured and maimed by the church, where would he be if he was in a real church that had real health that actually cared for his soul and sought to restore him? Now, keep, you have to keep in mind, it takes both sides. You, you try to restore, but if a person don't want to be restored, you can't make them be restored. But let us not shuck our position to, in gentleness, seek to restore. But then the person needing to be restored must respond. And for Peter, he must feed the sheep. And he does. Think about this because as we do this and we feel the weight of what fault they're in, we keep watch on ourselves, the text says. We keep watch on ourselves lest we too fall into something even more grievous, perhaps, lest we fall into the same temptation. And think about this. I'll just give this honest thought out there. I hear things and you read things, and 
Pastor so-and-so, uh, pastor of Travis Avenue Baptist Church, is arrested at DWI, and he's fired. All of his information is taken off the internet now, and he's no longer there. And you see a headline, like it's a true story. You see the headline, and the first thought comes to your mind, I can't believe that guy. I'd never do. I'd never. I'd, I'd never. The only reason I never is because of the restraining grace of God. You see another story, this pastor, did, this pastor did all these things, he said, man, I cannot believe, how could anybody be very, very cautious, keep watch on yourself, because when you start seeing others' faults and you come to the conclusion that you will never, you're already far gone, more gone than what you realize that you are. And you think about a hard story, if you will, a difficult story. You may know this for sure, but I think about stories like 1 Corinthians 5. I don't like 1 Corinthians 5 too much. This kind of stuff doesn't just happen in 2023. This stuff happens in the first century. 1 Corinthians 5, it's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Let me pause. I understand there's a difference between sin that would disqualify a man for an office. There's a difference between that and being restored to active and good, healthy fellowship within a church. There's a difference between those two. I'm not saying this guy here in chapter 5 is going to be the pastor of Second Baptist Corinth, and he's not qualified to be. But does this action mean he's beyond restoration? This is a wicked, grievous thing, is it not? I think about the guy on my ordination council back in 1996, and in my ordination council, and, and this guy's laying hands on me, praying for me. Where is he now? He's in prison because he's a sexual predator who was preying on kids in the church. I didn't know. And now he's in prison. I don't know when he's going to, he's still in prison. I don't know when he's going to get out. When that guy gets out, no, I don't think he can lead in the office of pastor. I don't think he can take care of the children in the children's department. But could he be restored to fellowship within the body of Christ? You say, well, yeah, but just as long as it's some other church. We don't want to get dirty, stuff like that, Right? This is difficult, but this is the story in 1 Corinthians. My story is no more graphic. This one's graphic. We got a guy in the church sleeping with his father's wife. This is messed up. Are you, are you so arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Why does Paul say you ought to mourn? Ought to break your heart that such sin is happening. Such a fault has been found ought to break your heart. The problem in churches is when there's a fault that big, people get arrogant and prideful and just rail against the person, but they never mourn. They don't weep any tears because it does not break their heart. Yeah, let the guy who did this be removed. He needs to be removed. But don't ever forget, even when Paul says this, he's still thinking about restoration someday. He goes on through this text. He brings these things out. He makes it clear this guy deserves to be removed. There deserves to be some type of punishment. But you're going to be separated for a time where there would be shame to the degree that someday 
there would be the opportunity for restoration. And then you look in 2 Corinthians in chapter 2, and you look there, and there's been a period of time goes by. And so this period of time went by. Paul hadn't forgot about this guy. Other people are still aware of what he did. It made the news. It's on the front page of the paper in Corinth. Everybody knows, but yet time has gone on. The guy has understood what he's done to be wrong. And then you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. If anyone has caused me pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. This guy hurt the church. For such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. It's enough. There needs to be a time of restoration. So you should rather turn to, look at this. You're going to forgive this guy who's sleeping with the father's wife. All of that's now over. You're going to forgive him. And see the text there. And comfort. Brother, I love you. Brother, I care for you. Brother, I'm glad that you're coming back into the fellowship. Let me give you a hug. It's good to see you. How are you? Comfort him. Why? Because if you keep taking a prideful, arrogant position, you may overwhelm him with excessive sorrow, which is detrimental to his soul. Paul says this to Corinth. I beg you. I beg you. I plead with you. To reaffirm your love to him. This is tall cotton, as they say. This is deep waters. You, Paul, are asking me to restore and reaffirm my love for a man who was in this church, who was sleeping with his father's wife. No thank you. That's the way we respond. With lesser issues. This, you say, but this is a big issue, but this issue still has in it this fabric of restoration. He says, this is why I wrote to you, to test you. I want to know whether you're going to be obedient or not. I want to know whether you're going to obey God. Obedient to what? In Galatians, be obedient to the command. You must restore. Anyone whom you forgive, I'll forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be, notice, outwitted by Satan. When a church loses or never apprehends the biblical obedience of restoration, Satan will use fault-finding to divide the church and cause utter chaos every time. And Paul says, we're not ignorant of his designs. He'll take upstanding religious Christian fault finders and he will maximize the use of them for the destruction of the church. But the one thing the devil does not like is a group of people who are so humbled by the forgiveness they've received in the gospel that they're willing to restore brothers and sisters who have been caught in a fault. That irks the devil, if you will. And that brings health to the church. Now, I don't know about your life and what you've been through, what you've not been through church-wise and all of those types of things, but can you remember ever in your life being in a fault and having someone care enough about you that they said, I 
forgive you. So I'm asking you to go back in your mind and to see if there was ever a time that someone forgave you. And if that ever happened, I'm asking you to dig deep in your heart and say, how did that affect you to know that you were forgiven of this fault? So I can't answer your mind, I can answer my mind, but I go back in my mind and I think about a time when I was forgiven, and the thing that stands out to me most is liberality, freedom, a weight lifted off, joy entered in, a restored relationship. I'm overwhelmed that someone would care this much. Those things are priceless. And if you can't think of a, a human relationship, then go back to Calvary. There you stand with all your wickedness and your depravity of heart and you have a perfect righteous Savior saying, I forgive you for you know not what you do. He says, my eye diffused the quickening ray and, 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 and my, rose up and my chains fell off and I was free. He said, when we receive that, we cannot be like the man in the parable who had a $10 billion debt and he was forgiven and then he beats the smack out of a guy that owes him two pennies. That's not right. We've received great forgiveness, great mercy, great grace that Christ has given us and here we are finding faults with petty things, with brothers and sisters in Christ, with no heart to restore them. It can't be that way, brothers and sisters. Not that I, it's not even going on in this church, but we need to know this, where the next time somebody's caught in a fault, our first response is, how, oh Lord, can I work in this situation to restore them because I want what's best for them. I want them to succeed. I want them to make it to the end. And I know restoration's the answer. Lord, how can I be of a help and assistance to restore them. That ought to be the heart of the church. Come with a list of the faults you found until you've made a list of the steps of restoration that you are already taking. And then this issue in verse 3 again is self-deception. I want to say something else about that as well tonight, but For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. He deceives himself. Self-deception. I gave you a list of self-deceived people in the Bible, but I want you to look at one uh, that I listed, and his name is Haman in the book of Esther. And so if you'll turn there in the book of Esther for just a moment, in chapter 6, you'll find him there for sure. And this is a difficult thing for us, but he read the book and found out this honor was done. They wanted to know what honor has been done for this man who did this thing for the king. So in Esther 6 and verse 3, the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Well, you know, nobody did nothing for Mordecai. So This is the king trying to figure out how to honor Mordecai. The king said, who's in the court? Haman had just entered the outer court, having having just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows 
that he had prepared for him. You, you see this picture. Haman built gallows to hang Mordecai. The king's over here wanting to know how to honor Mordecai. One guy's executing him. One guy's honoring him. But Haman is so self-deceived. Listen to how the story goes. The king's young man told him, Haman is there standing in the court. The king said, well, let him come in. Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? The immediate answer, it's got to be me. Everybody wants to honor me. I'm so important. He never had the foggiest clue that it had to do with Mordecai. He was self-deceived. And so when he thinks it's all about him, he gives this great big list. Let him ride on the king's horse. Let him wear the king's robes. Let him run down the middle of the street and everybody say, boom, this is what is done for the man who wants to be honored by the king. Yeah, let him do all that. And then you hear these blazing words. Do all of that for Mordecai right now. And self-deception is blown out of the waters right then. The situation comes, there's fault to be found, you're supposed to restore in a spirit of gentleness, you're supposed to bear one another's burdens, fulfill the law of Christ, which is love. At the point that you think that you are too good to humble yourself, to restore or to bear someone else's burden, you're self-deceived. You think that you're too good to stoop to help a brother who's been caught in a fault. The reason is, is because you think too much of yourself. It's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Self-deception will get you hung on your own gallows. I think that's why it's so important to be a part of a local church. And I think that's why a lot of people don't readily want to be a part of this church because there isn't a level of accountability there's an account a level of responsibility and so I think it's good we want brothers and sisters who are members of the church to be in the church they're members of and serve their church and so when a brother's missing a lot of times he gets called they send him a text message is everything okay? Where are you at? So in a sense, there's restoration. You don't want them to run away because why? The worst thing that can possibly happen is for a person to leave the church and never return. It's just like, this is a fault. Remember the Lord's day, keep it holy. This is a fault. They're not at church. I didn't condemn them, but how can I restore them to healthy fellowship with the church? And so, But some people don't want the accountability of being restored in church. They just want to come and go as they please and not be held accountable. Whatever everybody else's position is, so be it. But the church's responsibility is not to be self-deceived and always seek to restore one who wonders, to bear another's burden that they're bearing and so fulfill the law of Christ. Don't be self-deceived. You may be leaving the church next month. Look, I've been doing this for a long time, and I've seen countless number of people that are never going to leave the church who've left it multiple times over. Okay, So look, I know it can happen to me. I know it can happen to you. And so we have to not be self-deceived and encourage each other all the more as we see the day 
approaching. To Man, I just grabbed Luke out of Hebrews. Yeah, I didn't see that coming. Okay. All right, and then uh, that's another whole story. You wait till I preach in Jonathan's church again. I'm coming with, I don't care what he signs to me. I know what I'm <laughs> Yeah, somebody call him and tell him that. Say, Randall said next time he comes. Okay, yeah, let's move on. So back to Galatians, but verses 4 and 5. I'm not going to uh, do much with verse 4 again, but verse 5. Each one is going to have to bear his own load. And so I do want to remind us of this again tonight because it's weird because we take these positions. The church didn't restore. The church didn't bear my burden. The church didn't care about me and the church didn't love me, which those things could be true. The church could have been that way to them. But at the same time, you still have a responsibility to bear your own burden. You still have a responsibility in this fault that you've been caught in and you have a responsibility to yourself and to the Lord to repent out of that and to become where you ought to be. Now, in conclusion, uh, for those of you that love Pilgrim's Progress, um, let me remind you of a couple of excerpts uh, that go with this and that will help us to put things together, I think, um, into kind of an allegory here that makes sense. So, you Christian gets to this hill of difficulty. And now the books, according to your books, different page numbers, but page 40 in my book, and you get to the hill of difficulty. And at this hill, uh, there's a spring at the bottom, and you can drink and be refreshed. And so he's contemplating the hill, gets some water, he refreshes himself. And then you got a path over here and a path over here, but he says, you know what, this is the narrow path, this is the right path, straight up this hill of difficulty, shall I go? And this is what he says. This hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend. For I perceive the way to life lies here. Come, pluck up heart. Let's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go. Than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. It's a great, great word. Page 40. You jump to page 126. And my feet hurt. And I'm tired of walking this narrow road. i got this guy with me named Hopeful. But I'm tired of this path. And they come up to this dividing line. And there's this stile that goes this way and the narrow path. It looks like they go the same way. But this path is a lot easier. So they went to the stile to see, and behold, the path along the way on the other side of the fence. And he says, "'Tis according to my wish,' said Christian. "'Here is the easier going. "'Come, good hopeful, let's go over.'" You should have stuck with page 40. He didn't plan it. It looked like a good idea. He thought it would be the best, but he's now caught in a fault, and he leads hopeful in his fault, and you know where he ends up. He ends up in Doubting Castle. And there he is in Doubting Castle. You go over to page 131, 
And this giant's beating the smack out of them. It's a terrible story. It's terrible. It gets to the place, basically, you need to commit suicide. It's the only relief you can get is to commit suicide. And Christian is now at the point of saying, you know what? I think that's a wise option. I think killing myself would be the best way to solve the problem. And Hopeful says, let's be patient. Let's be patient. Giant despair might fall over dead. He might get in one of his frenzies and lose his mind and forget to lock the door. Just hold on, brother. I I don't want you to go into this fault and commit self-murder. But listen carefully. Here's Christian in fault, on the wrong path, in the wrong place, in Doubting Castle. This is how restoration comes when somebody cares. He doesn't say to Christian, you're a bonehead, you're an idiot, and you don't even know how to read your Bible. That's not what he says. He says this, my brother, remember how valiant you was earlier? Do you remember how you defeated Apollyon? Do you remember how you went through the valley of the shadow of death? Do you remember the hardship, the terror, the amazement, all those things you've already gone through, and now you're in fear? Oh, brother, remember what you were. You can still be strong. You you see, look, look, Christian, I'm in the dungeon with you. I'm right here beside you. We're suffering together through this thing. I'm a weaker man by nature than you are. And this giant has wounded me as well as he's wounded you. He's also cut off my bread as well as he's cut off your bread. And and I don't have any water and you don't have any water. and, And I mourn because there's no light in the room. But could you just exercise a little more patience? Could you not play the man like you did in Vanity Fair? You weren't afraid of the chain or the cage, nor of the bloody death. Bear up with patience as well as we can. I'll suffer through Doubting Castle with you, but don't you give up. We're going to make it. Somehow, we're going to make it. And then later, they get out of Doubting Castle. They go back up to the place where they got off the path where a Christian led them into a fault. And they said, first response, how can we save others from falling in the same fault that I led you into? What what can we do? Let's, Let's put a sign up. Over this style is the way to Doubting Castle. It's kept by giant despair who despises the king of the celestial country. He seeks to destroy his holy pilgrims. Many, therefore, that follow after read what was written and escaped the danger. I was in a fault. Hopeful helped me through my fault. We suffered through the fault together. We were restored out of the fault. And then we warned other people not to fall in the same fault. And so many people's lives were spared out of the way we went and then we found what was to tread upon forbidden ground and let them that come after have a care lest heedlessness make them as we to fare lest they for trespassing his prisoners are whose castles doubting and whose name is despair I see a fault 
My heart's response is love and compassion to help restore, to bear a burden, to work through the situation, and then to put a sign up to the rest of the church and say, don't walk this way. It's the heart of biblical Christianity. And it may be opinion, and that's fine. You don't have to stick with my opinions. You do have to believe this text. But my opinion is this. There's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and hurts and pains and things that people may never get over because of what they've experienced in church by a people who say they've been delivered by the gospel and they're in love with Christ, but they've done nothing but find faults and never done an ounce of work to restore anyone. Restoration is the last thing on the church's mind. It's tough. But when we seek to restore, we fulfill the law of Christ. So as you go tonight, and as you do church here for however long the Lord has you here, the next fault you see, would you say, how can I help restore because I care about my brother? Let's pray. Father, I am thankful for Dr. Vincent. I'm thankful for Dr. Cable. And there are others. And I'm thankful for those who are willing to help me bear burdens in my life. I'm thankful for those who sought to help restore me when I was caught in a fault. And Lord, I know there are many, many thousands of stories in this church and churches all over where faults have been had or faults have been caught in those faults. Lord, forgive us for not being willing to even think about restoration. Help us, Lord, to learn from this passage the practical, humble, gentle truth of loving someone enough to seek their restoration and to help them bear their burden. And Lord, for us to do that, we would actually have to care about someone besides us. Help us with this, Lord, for we don't have the strength to do it ourselves. We pray these things tonight by your Spirit, in Christ's name, amen.